HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Ever wonder what the future holds? Well, today I'm going to tell you. At the start-ish of every winter season, I love talking with those who have their ear to the ground, covering the most important food and ag stories that we expect to be on the forefront um, of the months ahead. This year, the Food and Environment Reporting Network recently published a new annual survey highlighting the top 10 issues they think will make up the news in 2018. And from the fight to control seed technology to antibiotic resistance in livestock to the health risks of Roundup, not to mention the Farm Bill renewal, there'll be no shortage of things for us to discuss. Joining me on the line today to comment on and further analyze these stories is Sam Fromarts, Editor-in-Chief of the Food and Environment Reporting Network, an independent nonprofit and news organization reporting on food, agriculture, and environmental health through partnerships with regional and national media outlets. Sam, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Um, okay, so can you tell, tell me a little bit about this survey? Is this the first year that it was published, or have you done this before? This was the first year it was published, and I guess it's something that it is editors were always thinking about, but we decided to share our thinking with the public this year, so it was kind of a fun exercise. Yeah, um, and yeah, I, I mean, yeah, and it was um, just a, such a fun, engaging read um, for, for me. So, how did you decide who participated? Um, is this just you know, every 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 contributor or your main contributor is what was the decision process like? Yeah. So we put out a, a call to our our writers and these are writers who are regularly covering issues for us. 
And, you know, we asked them what's brewing on the horizon. And um, this is the, the list of 10 topics is what they came back uh, to us with. So we, we had a couple more that, you know, we, we wanted to make it an even 10. So, you know, we left it at that. Um, you know, some were kind of obvious because, say, the Farm Bill is, you know, a process that have, happens every five years or so that reauthorizes spending on SNAP benefits, which is, you know, what food stamps are now called, mm -hmm. or, you know, as well as um, um, subsidies for farmers. And that is going through reauthorization again this year. So that's that obvious, obvious going to be in the news yeah. and a hot topic. Um, so that was an obvious one. And then others that were maybe less obvious, like the brewing battle over seeds, that kind of thing. So... You know, these are just issues that our writers who are covering these topics are, you know, um, you know, have in their wheelhouse to, to follow. And they, you know, we asked them to write up just a short little blurb for us to, to explain what the issue was. And um, anything that um, they kind of came back with? So, I mean, I'm assuming there was some sort of consensus on, on these issues, like did... Um, a lot of the reporters kind of say the same stuff, and that's how you, one of the ways you made the decision? Uh, not really, because they're covering such varied areas, mm -hmm. like Marin McKenna, for example, who covers uh, antibiotics and livestock. Um, uh, she has a, actually a wonderful book out on the subject called Big Chicken, but mm -hmm. she's really right in the mix of these issues and knowing what the latest developments are. So you know, she she sort of versed us in that one. Um, and so all these writers really have um, various specialties. Um, another example of the Farm Bill, again, was, is uh, written up by Chuck Abbott, who does our daily policy coverage from mm -hmm. Washington. So he's really in the thick of the blow-by-blow. Blow, yeah. Uh, we've had, we've had Hill, Chuck on right? a couple but, of times. He's great. Yeah, yeah. So he's... You know, he's he's really in the thick of it, but yeah, we, asked, we asked him for this, this little thing to just step back a little bit and, you know, tell us what's going on. Anything that surprised you that you didn't see coming? Um, well, I, I guess some things that were, that were quite, um, uh, um, I guess I wasn't aware, for example, that the Mangus-Stevens Mangus Act, uh, which deals with fisheries, um, and, and deals with how the country regulates its, uh, its fisheries. I wasn't aware that that's um, up for uh, um, reauthorization again. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that was a little bit of a surprise because the U.S. fisheries are actually in pretty good shape, but if this bill is, you know, uh, uh, emaciated, it'll, if, if it's sort of taken down, that, that could put that in threat again. Uh, the fisheries and threat again, um, and others like um, Elizabeth Royt's little blurb on on food waste. It, it, that may be a little bit of a narrow one, but sort of like what's the next step in dealing with food waste? That was that was new to me. Mm -hmm. And then just the what what Paige wrote, uh, Paige Embry wrote on um, on bees and pollinators because. Um, you know, these pollinators obviously in the, have been in the news for quite a while, but what's, you know, what's 
potentially going on in the next year, and what she tied it to was the whole potential, or not potential, the whole decline in research funding at, at government bodies that actually research issues like pollinators. Mm-hmm. And with the budget cuts that are being proposed and being worked work through, that's the type of research that'll get the axe. And so, you know, for a issue like pollinators that's on the you know, really on the front burner, and they're so crucial to our food production. But by helping pollination, you know, that could that could be a, a, a threat down the road. Right. Absolutely. Let's just let's start there and, and jump into that um, topic a little bit more. So when we think about kind of the the bee, the declining bee population, which we've covered a little bit on the show, um, you know, I kind of I personally think of things like um, the culprits being industrial agriculture pathogens, climate change, um, the loss of biodiversity, kind of all of these issues. And it it was interesting to me because she kind of talked a little bit about something different that I hadn't really heard a lot about, which was um, the absconding of, of bees. So they're kind of just like, like flying away and that, and, you know, um, that kind of leading to the declining population, and scientists don't know why. So, can you can you give us a little bit more background on on this topic? Well, I mean, it's it ties into just you know all the things that you mentioned, which is all the various threats that that um, bees face. And I think what she was pointing to was that you know research was going in uh, to this one one aspect of it, um, which was. Um, you know, dealing with an, a, a chemical uh, attractant to, to bring the bees, you know, to where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say, you know, just on other things that um, Paige has written and other things that we've written at Fern, I mean, there's a lot of research going on in, about bees and the whole issue of colony collapse disorder where, you know, something some, somewhere on the order of a range of, you know, a third of all uh, uh, bee colonies die, you know, every winter, um, and all the various reasons for that going on, and it's it's so complicated, and you know, inevitably the the agrochemical industry wants to point to pathogens, and environmentalists want to point to the agrochemical industry with their pesticides, and um, you know, it seems it seems like all of these various things are really interacting, and it's a co- the science is quite complicated. But I think the point that Paige is making is, you know, if you don't spend money figuring it out, I mean, that's going to be a huge right. loss. And then, what so, agency is responsible for that? Uh, or, or, yeah, or, USDA yeah. does some of that research. I mean, it happens in in um, other other bodies as well, like the National Science Foundation. Um, but a lot of those grants flow through universities, and you know it just isn't. Um, you know, if the, if that support is cut, um, and it's already tenuous, if you talk to most you know researchers, mm-hmm. um, that'll mean that you know these experiments can't can't occur. So solutions can't be found. Um, so you we touched on for a second um, food waste uh, and. In this kind of overview, um, Elizabeth writes that food scrap recovery in the U.S. has increased um, by 87 percent, which is quite remarkable. So, what what is the what's the issue here? 
<laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> well, yeah, the issue here is we waste like 40% of our food. So. Right, still, okay. You know, that, yeah. that's, that's the issue. Um, and it's great that cities and municipalities are undertaking composting programs, but, you know, wouldn't it be great, too, if we actually wasted less than, <laughs> right. you know, than we did? Um, so, uh, but what she's what she's finding is this sort of next generation. Uh, I would call it next generation composting, but it's probably not the accurate term because it's it's how um, you know cities will begin to institute um, these anaerobic uh, digesters that that generate both um, biogas, which is you know fuel, mm-hmm. um, and as well as heat. So. And actually, I'm in Washington D.C. and Washington D.C. our our sewage treatment uh, facility. Um, they take it's not a food composting operation, but it is a biosolid where they where where it's digested, so to speak, and it produces energy to fuel the plant as well as uh, you know a, a biosolid product mm-hmm. uh, that 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 can be used as compost. Although. In, in the organic world, at least, it's pretty controversial about whether you should use something like that. But what's um, what's the issue here, though? I mean, um, just in general for these for these uh, anaerobic digesters. Uh, the issue is like is that they're pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. So I think to to make it worthwhile, you really need um, a pretty vast system of of waste collection. And um, but once you have that, the the you know the investment in these plants can can pay off, but it's really kind of the latest um, um, you know newest wave um, uh, that's going on. With yeah, and then who owns just who owns these are these like a state owned city owned kind of uh, like uh, te- not technology but. <clears throat> Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> is the word I'm looking for? A plant, plant. <laughs> plant yes. yes. On Infrastructure, you the, yeah. You get, the, you get the product on the other end. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, I mean, some of them are state-owned, they're municipal-owned, and then I I think I would have to check, but I think some are private as well. So. Okay. Hmm, interesting. Um, so, um, but she, she points out that the number of these plants is expected to jump as... Um, you know, as more food waste is collected, as landfills get, you know, fuller, and um, you know, the cities adopt uh, zero waste goals. So, um, so speaking of food waste, on the, I mean, on the opposite end of that, um, Lisa Hamilton writes about um, battles over seed technologies and how that can affect. Right. Um, our food source um, moving forward, or you know how it's like responding to um, natural disasters that put our food source at je- in jeopardy, and how if we don't have these kind of this technology, it could really um, put our food source in, in jeopardy moving forward. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about this kind of debate um, and what's at stake? Yeah, and that's I mean if you want to really get into that debate, just Google Lisa Lisa Hamilton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's done a lot of really great articles on this subject, um, having to do with you know who controls seed, um, the kind of battles over it, um, and as well as uh, things like open source seed, where seed is freely shared and and no one controls its intellectual property. Mm-hmm. So 
what she's talking about um, is it's it's pretty well recognized that you know we're going to face new stresses going forward, especially with climate change, and so um, seed researchers are trying to be- breed new types of seed that are um, more resilient for for the new era, you know, that's coming. And the question is, who controls that seed? And mm-hmm. whether um, whether that's the appropriate response or, say, locally adapted varieties that have been, you know, developed by farmers over millennium by, by saving and selecting, you know, seeds that they like, whether that's kind of the more appropriate way forward. Can that not happen and, now? And you see a sort of a combination of both of those. And right. actually the most interesting stuff is happening when this either collect uh, those traditional seeds, which are known as Wanray seeds, um, as well as wild cultivars. That's like seeds that just grow in the wild that have never been domesticated mm-hmm. and using um, elements of their genetics in seed breeding because they may have novel um, disease resistance or novel um, 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 response to drought or whatever it is. So that's it's a fairly technical area, but it's also highly politicized because the, is some, it, it has to do with GMOs? Countries that, can, oh. that have, you know, that have these seeds, they right. don't want it essentially to be ripped off and have their you know, seed technology privatized. So I guess, what, what are we talking about when we talk about seed technology primarily? Does it, will this primarily affect commodity crops or is this like the, you know, the specialty no. fruits and vegetable crops that we're talking about? It, um, I mean, it's definitely going on in, in more commodity crops, but it's going on in things like quinoa. You know, it could be in um, different types of sweet potatoes or cassava, which are, you know, staple plants in, you know, other parts of the world. So, you know, it's a range of things. It's, it, and probably less so in the sort of corn, soybean, um, which is uh, really controlled by the major agrochemical companies, you know, these days. And they have you know, a lock hold on that, on that technology. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, where you might see it in corn is maybe in Mexico with where their battles over protecting their native corn varieties, for example. Um, uh, you know, so that, so that, um, genetically modified, um, corn, you know, doesn't, doesn't, um, um, cross with those plants and maybe, and you know, end them forever. Mm-hmm. So Mexico, for example, still bans GMO uh, mm-hmm. corn. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's talk about some agrochemical companies <laughs> and, and, what's, <laughs> and what's, you know, what, what issues that we expect to face from them um, in the next year. And it seems like this is, you know, a couple opportunities. Um, the first being Monsanto with uh, the Roundup kind of debate and whether or not um, glyphosate is, you know, the extent to which it is hazardous to, to our health. Can you give us a little bit of background on, on yeah, um, this? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, uh, controversy because um, 
one body, uh, uh, an agency of the World Health Organization, deemed that um, that Roundup or, or glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup, um, uh, uh, you know, they they, they determined that there, it, it was linked to cancer. Now, that sort of propelled a whole range of lawsuits in the United States, even though you know, may, many other bodies, including the EPA and European, you know, authorities deemed that it was not uh, a carcinogen. Right. So, so, um, but, but I guess what's, what's, what we're watching is sort of how these suits are going to unfold in this country. And there's a major um, action in California with them. Um, and then California so um, required a, a cancer warning uh, on the glyphosate, uh, on the Roundup, the label of Roundup. And, you know, this is quite significant because it's the most widely used uh, herbicide in the world. So it's really quite prevalent. And Monsanto, of course, you know, says this is all unfounded, mm-hmm. um, you know, and is fighting back. And um, we did a long story on this um, that sort of... Um, that looked into the ways that Monsanto is fighting back and the way it uses researchers and science to kind of sway the battle in their favor. Right. So I, I, uh, if anyone's interested in that background, I would, I would direct them to that story on our site. But that's going to continue to brew. That's, that issue is not over by any means. So we'll expect to see uh, more on that, um, you know, down the road. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I kind of, uh, speaking of large companies trying to sway the science or at least public opinion in their favor, um, you expect to see some, uh, you know, the battle over kind of like nutrition and, um, <clears throat> you know, nutritional spin, really, nutritional science and spin um, heat up this year as well, um, according to yeah, you guys. Yeah, I mean, we've seen, we've seen a lot of pretty interesting articles, investigations, scholarly um, exposés in, in scientific journals about the way, for example, um, the sugar industry had... Um, uh, Quashed, you know, uh, science, science that was, you know, critical of their, you know, of sugar, mm-hmm. and that goes, you know, that dates all the way back to the '60s, and there was a lot of, um, you know, there were a lot of really interesting revelations about that that came out in the past year. Um, Liza Gross, who wrote that uh, little piece for us, in following a lot of these issues, and is a uh, prolific science writer. She, um, you know, she she senses that more is going to come on this issue, you know, in the coming year. And is it going to be? Even seen it with, you know, various in the past, not not in the past year, but in the recent past about, you know, Coca Cola funding researchers, you know, uh, et cetera, to sort of, um, you know, uh, shift the blame away from sugary drinks' uh, role in obesity mm-hmm. to, you know, more. You know, it, it, it's lack of exercise, it's right. not diet, that kind of thing. Right. So, um, you know, so so she expects that more will be coming on on this, and, and she's done actually some really interesting work on. 
she did a sort of an expose about one science group for us that um, um, funds, uh, uh, facilitates a lot of um, communication between scientific uh, authorities and journalists, and she was saying that that group was sort of spinning science in a particular industry-friendly way. So that was one thing she did for us, and she's done other work um, most recently, not for us, but but interesting work on e- the risk of e-cigarettes, for example. Mm-hmm. So um, so she's pretty, in terms of the sort of conflict of interest in science and spinning science, she's kind of a leading writer on that issue. Um, great. Okay. Well, we're going to take a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. Um, but when we get back, we're going to continue our conversation with uh, Sam Fromertz about what reporters at the uh, Food and Environment Reporting Network think we're going to be are going to be the hot topics of 2018. Stay tuned. One Hundred Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. One Hundred Bogart is a brand new, state of the art co working space that provides turnkey workspaces including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Sam Fromartz, editor-in-chief of the Food and Environment Reporting Network, uh, about what his writers think are the key issues that will drive food and ag coverage for this year. Okay, so um, we have a few more. We've got about three more topics to cover um, that you guys think are going to be kind of the biggest, the biggest and baddest topics of 2018. And um, I want to kind of uh, jump off the post-break uh, discussion with something that we touched on earlier, which is uh, the American fisheries being in the deregulation crosshairs. And this starts with um, the Magnuson-Stevens Act, uh, which is up for, or can you can you just give us a little bit of an overview about what's, what's happening with the act right now and why um, this is such a timely issue? Yeah, uh, because the, um, uh, the Magnuson-Stevens Act, it was per, first uh, passed in 1976, and it it limited foreign vessels from fishing in American waters. Mm -hmm. And it also um, um, really uh, put in a series of regulations that protected fisheries. Um, And uh, by most accounts, I mean, the U.S. fisheries are in, they're either, a lot of them are are either coming back or they're in a pretty healthy state. Um, So prevented overfishing. Yeah, and yeah. preventing overfishing, for example, um, it, you know, in West Coast fisheries that were long um, red-listed by the Monterey, uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. That's the you might you might have seen you might see those at retailers or at 
you know, um, wallet cards where they give a, you know, a red for something to avoid and green for something to, you know, it's okay to, that it's sustainable. So West Coast Fisheries for a long time, many of them were on the red list and, you know, they've recently switched over to the, to the uh, either yellow or green, which is, which is you know, a, a better or, or, you know, a good alternative. So, um, um, so that's, um, so, so those conservation measures have worked. Um, but now, you know, it's, it's interesting with the, with the Trump administration, there have been a number of measures to open up either public lands or public fisheries to more, you know, to be more industry friendly. Mm-hmm. And I think the question here is, um, is whether the restrictions on fishing will be, you know, um, reduced um, to allow more fishing and whether that will, uh, you know, cause sort of um, uh, these, you know, these fisheries the to be, to, to be, to be overfished. So, so is it, uh, it's up conservation for... groups have, have called, you know, the, this this whole this whole effort to sort of um, emasculate the, the Magnuson-Stevens Act. They, they're calling it the Empty Oceans Act. And, uh, and why are point. we why are we talking about this now? Is it's up for reauthorization or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is this so, something that is has to do with the farm bill or is this separate from? No, this from is the... separate. This is separate. So. Um, uh, this was this was put forward by a Republican in, uh, from Alaska who wants to uh, overhaul the the act, and um, you know the it, it's passed the House Committee on Natural Resources, and it'll likely go to the floor sometime this year. Um, but uh, you know, hopefully, it won't get the. It'll be one of those measures that that dies because this. I mean, by any by any measure. Um, this act, um, you know, in place in 76 has been, you know, quite successful in bringing our fisheries back. And, you know, the other point about that is it's not that it's, that it's, you know, um, it's not that it's like a meeting, a meeting on industry, you know, we're not going to allow any fishing because if you talk to fishermen, you know, once the fisheries come back and the, and the fishery is more, is better managed, it ensures they'll have fish to catch in the future. Mm-hmm. And some fisheries, you know, get so decimated that there's no fish left, and then, you know, boats go bankrupt and, right. and the whole fishery completely collapses. So nobody wants that either. So so it's like, what's the middle, what's the middle ground that allows for a sustainable level of fishing? And there has been, I mean, like, why now change it, right? So I think that... Um, is this just because we have like a particularly uh, deregulation-oriented uh, Congress and just administration, or is this something that has been kind of brewing for a while? Well, I think it's a combination of that, and also you know those in Congress who want you know who want to to redo this, and you know whether they're pushed pushed by fishing interests or whoever. Um, you know they're going to try and make it happen. So it it really parallels what's happening, um, you know, in the public lands debate too. Which yeah. Is, you know, selling off more land for oil and gas drilling, open up more areas again. You know that kind of thing. Well, so let's talk about public lands. What are these kind of? I mean, they're public lands by definition, but kind of who regulates these, and what is entailed to to designate something a, a public land or not? 
Well, I mean, I think the most interesting thing um, here is sort of the high-profile battle over the monuments that Obama, you know, designated at the end of his administration, and specifically the Bears Ears National mm-hmm. Monument in Utah, mm-hmm. um, and put it, uh, um, you know, created a national monument that would uh, really keep it um, in its natural state and prevent industry from going in. And that's precisely what Secretary Zinke, you know, and Trump said they were going to try and redo, and, you know, they have. I mean, they're going to face lawsuits over it, but, right. you know, they want to roll back uh, those those areas, you know, as well as others. And it's a big, you know, it's a big battle in the West, and there's a whole um, very vocal libertarian movement to sort of take lands out of federal hands and put them know, into states, states' rights, or allow ranchers to use them. And, you know, the most the most uh, vocal proponent of that has been the, the Bundy family, you know, which has been tried and yeah. acquitted on on a couple of occasions. Um, so you can know, you give us a... They were the ones behind the am, ar, armed uh, standoff with, uh, with federal officials. Yeah, and that is something, I, f- I feel like I totally, I mean, I knew that was happening, but I didn't really pay, I mean, full disclosure like that, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. much well, attention to it. But... Because it's a public lands issue and you don't really think of it as a food issue, but it does, a lot of these public lands involve issues of ranching and because cattle graze on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of, uh, there, the, you know, the, 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 the portion of ranchers that want some sort of, you know, that want these so-called freedoms, they're not entirely supported because there's an argument that um, grazing costs would go up dramatically if they were under state control because it takes a lot of money to sort of, you know, to manage these lands. Mm-hmm. And and right now they're leased at a very low, you know, under cost rate to ranchers. And if they if they actually, if the, if the cost reflected what it actually um, costs you know, authorities to to manage these lands, and the cost to ranchers would be much higher. So, so there's a whole group that's worried that, you know, if these do go back to states, it's, it'll it'll it could lead to higher grazing fees, for example. Right. Um, but what the Bundys did was, you know, basically just seize the land for their own control. <laughs> they just took um, it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and they haven't been, um, you know, uh, apprehended. Yeah, they they are you know they've been charged, but they've so far they've they've gotten off. And my understanding is, I think they're still grazing those lands. I may be wrong on that, but um, yeah, you know. So it's a you know these it's a you know these western lands. There's a lot of federal land, so it's a it's a pretty controversial issue. But I think both of these, you know, the fisheries issue and this, it's sort of you know the question of what do you do with with the commons and how do you regulate it and who has access to it, mm-hmm. who has control over it and who can make money off of it. Right. And those are the really interesting thing about this is that on the other side of the issue are not only conservationists and environmentalists, which you would expect, but also pretty vocal group of hunters and um, um, outdoor enthusiasts who, 
use the lands as well and want access to them and maybe not, you know, don't want, you know, oil drilled in, right. you know, in these areas so that they can continue to use them. Right. And, and the, the hunters, at least, uh, especially tend to be a pretty conservative, you know, Republican um, group. leaning group. Yeah. So it sort of makes her an interesting um, split there. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that we, you know, why is this timely right now, or why why do we expect to see more of this in the next year? Well, simply because the the Trump administration is trying to undo, you know, and open up a lot of these lands to oil and gas drilling, um, you know, to to what? reduce regulations of them, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, why? I guess I don't understand why this would be. Um, something that even Bundy would would be supportive of. I mean, I guess you know he he just went ahead and seized uh, public land, but it just seems like it would be a conflict of interest for anybody who benefits off of using that land, including uh, the ranchers who might rely on um, utilizing it to subsidize their costs. Yeah, I mean they. I mean they obviously they need access to the land, and the question is. Which land should it be, you know, and how much you should pay? How much should you pay for it, and who should be in control of those decisions? Mm-hmm. If it's just a rancher saying, you know, I just want this land because it's nearby, you know, I don't think that, you know, it's essentially me deciding, you know, the public park two blocks from my house is, you know, I really, I really want to use that for my own use, and I'm just going to do it. Right. So I don't think that would be allowed. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it's public lands in the West, and it's a whole different issue. Um, well, interesting. Definitely, I look forward to kind of seeing what unfolds with that. Yeah, um, we, yeah I think there'll be more fireworks on that this year for sure. Um, so then, then kind of lastly, I want to touch on ag consolidation, which is something just consolidation in general I've been very fascinated with, and we've no doubt um, seen a lot of, at least over the past year or so. So can you kind of touch on a couple of the big mergers um, from 2017 and what is uh, coming down the pike uh, in 2018? Well, I, you know, I think what you've seen is just a consolidation of these huge um, agrochemical companies. And uh, essentially, they're all in, they're all involved in mergers, and um, you know I think that's going to. I don't know that that's going to continue essentially because that process is 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 sort of winding up. But but the impact of that I think is is more interesting, which is, um, and it's something that that farmers to a degree some farmers are worried about, um, which is you put power in, you know, the control of, you know, a, a, few. Just a very uh, few, you know, handful of companies, um, you know, what is, where does that leave them? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that has to do with monopoly control of seeds or chemicals or, you know, all these things that farmers are dependent on. And, um, um, you know, could potentially raise their costs. 
Also, it you know, with this whole uh, Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods, I would imagine that farmers might be worried that, you know, I mean, Amazon kind of is notorious for coming in and being able to lower prices on certain items or, um, you know, at least that's the perception that they give. And certainly it is true for a few items. Um, and the question that I think that raises is what happens on the, you know, who absorbs those costs? And it seems to me that uh, farmers are going to be in all likelihood, the ones who do so. Um, well, at least yeah, that's my prediction. there's already reports on that that we've, I mean, we've, we've had in our, in our daily policy briefing of, um, you know, people, uh, suppliers complaining now about, about that at Whole Foods and, um, and sort of openly talking about, you know, what things have, what's happened since, the, since that acquisition. Yeah. Um, so, Is you know, I think it, fits into this whole trend of, um, you know, of very few companies controlling vast amounts of um, businesses and, and revenue, and where does that leave right. the rest of us? So I think, I think you're starting to see also in the political sphere some of that backlash against, against consolidation, mm-hmm. and you have politicians, especially in sort of the Democratic or left, the left, more left wing of the Democratic Party, you know, raising these issues on a, on a national scale. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, you know, I think that's going to continue. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how that crop, you know, uh, how that crops up in the, in the fall elections, if it does at all. Mm-hmm. And certainly in the next, uh, in the next presidential campaign in 2020. Absolutely. Okay, so I, I there was one more. I hate to go nine out of ten <laughs> issues and and for, forget the tenth. And this is is such a such a huge issue um, across the board, and it is antibiotic resistance in livestock. So this seems to be like something that is you know we've been talking about for a long time, although not a lot has necessarily been done on it, um, or not enough, a lot of people would say, but, um, you know, can you, can I tell us about kind of what we can expect to see in 2018, um, especially a year after some headway has been made to, um, limit the amount of routine use of antibiotics? Right. So that was the significant thing that the FDA did was they instituted these measures, um, to limit antibiotics, um, and there were also voluntary measures um, uh, by the industry itself. And I think the question now is, as livestock, as some livestock producers cut back on an- antibiotics, what's the impact? Is antibiotic use actually going down? Mm-hmm. Um, and for the first time, the FDA is leasing numbers on actual antibiotic use, which wasn't, you know, hasn't been the case previously. So we're starting to see, you know, so this year will be a good indication of how these voluntary measures, as well as some of the, you know, legislated, uh, the regulated measures that the FDA took, what impact they're having, if anything. But yeah, it's a huge issue. Um, It's still recognized as a major public health issue by every everybody public health yeah. Yeah, body <laughs> around. And, um, you know, and others are further ahead, uh, mostly European nations, in terms of, in, in terms of getting these antibiotics out of the, out of the 
uh, animal production mm-hmm. um, um, routine. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, hopefully, hopefully, there's kind of good. Um, the findings will be positive after this first year, or if not, we'll be able to kind of do some further uh, regulating because. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is they, so they did ban, you know, you can't just give the antibiotics as a as a prophylactic, you know, in their feed, in their daily feed, but you can get approval from a veterinarian to use the antibiotics in the case of sickness. And the, and the question is whether that use in, in, in sickness is going to be a loophole that allows um, essentially the same kind of feeding of antibiotics to animals to continue. So I think that's, that's the question that Marin was raising in that, that little piece. Um, well, definitely more to come on that. Um, and we will certainly be covering it in, in greater detail um, as the months unfold. Well, I think that that's all we have time for um, today. Sam, uh, I want to thank you so very much for coming on the show. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. It's great talking to you. Absolutely. You too. Okay. Um, to read more about these issues and all of the amazing coverage from The Fern, go to thefern.org. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support. And um, thank you, as always, to our fabulous engineer, Vitor Hirscht. Uh, show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. Uh, I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.